Good morning, and welcome to episode 772 of Effectively Wild, a daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindberg of 538.com. Hi, Ben. Hi. How you doing? Okay. How was your weekend? All right. Okie doke. Yeah. Good big show ahead of us today. A lot of great stuff to talk about. Let's jump right in. Okay. <laughs> Do you have anything to talk about that you want to jump right into? Not really. All right. Uh, so I wanted to talk about a few things uh, that are all sort of newsworthy and any one of which might make a topic or any one of which might not. One of them will. We'll see. Yeah. All right. So uh, first topic, first mini topic, two mini and one bigger, but we'll see. Who knows? You never know. They're mm-hmm. like prospects. Yeah. You never know where the DeGrom is going to come from. <laughs> right. All right. So, uh, the Utley rule. Okay. Ken Davidoff uh, wrote in the New York Post that, quote, momentum continues to build toward a rule that would, um, I guess, legislate slides such as the one that Chase Utley uh, did in the playoffs to break Ruben Tejada. Um, this was a slide that we talked about that we I, I, I thought was, you know, maybe the, one of the most egregious of the year and not simply a, a hard slide, uh, but one worthy of uh, considering why a slide like that seems to be legal or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so we didn't know, it seemed clear at the time that uh, probably given the uh, impact of the slide as well as the uh, high profile nature of the slide occurring as it did in the middle of a playoff series in front of many children, many children. Uh, that there would be something done about it. And so now it seems like there will be something done about it. And I'm curious what you think about about baseball's general history of fixing problems with more specific rules. Well, I mean, people still kind of complain about the catcher rule, but for the most part, it works, right? I mean, it doesn't... uh doesn't really disrupt the game anymore. There was initial confusion, and then it was kind of clarified, and now it mostly works okay. There are some people who still aren't happy about it, but we have fewer collisions and fewer guys breaking legs, and it doesn't really make the game that much worse. I guess it, it does deprive us of some exciting plays at the plate, but it seems like an okay price to pay. So... I don't know. What I mean, are you thinking of any specific rules that backfired? Replay is, you know, a new thing, and then it has to be clarified. I mean, every rule has a period where no one totally understands it, or they seem to work the kinks out. It doesn't seem like baseball has a great history of just getting it perfect when they amend a rule or they put a, a new rule in place. There's a period where there are unintended consequences, like the kind of, you know, slides that we've talked about in replay and people getting tagged out for plays that they never would have been tagged out for before and kind of cheaply in that it's the proper way to slide and they come off kind of inevitably and people are talking about amending that kind of call also. So there's always some unintended consequence that maybe MLB should have anticipated in some cases, but you put the rules in place and then they play for a while and then weird stuff happens that no one thought about and then you have to fix it again. 
So maybe, yeah. maybe that'll happen in this case also. So the reason I uh, was thinking about this is because Craig Calcaterra wrote that the rule as already existent covers this. It just requires, I mean, it has squishy language that requires judgment calls by the umpires. And so as Craig writes, it does involve a judgment on the part of the umpires. And baseball has run screaming from umpire judgment in recent years, preferring overly complicated bright line rules, which make for more, not less, confusion. In this case, I'd be shocked if whatever spins out of the commissioner's office doesn't involve zones governing the precise geography of acceptable slides and finite measurements between a base runner and the bag. This despite the fact that it's pretty damn obvious when a runner is trying harder to take out an infielder than he is simply re- to simply reach a bag safely. And I was, uh, I, it called to mind some examples uh not all of them safety related but just examples where there's there seems like there is kind of always a tension between trying to be more specific with rules and then having the specificity of those rules uh either completely blow up in your face or like you say sometimes just lead to a adapted rule that then works perfectly and we never think of it again and so like we mentioned on this show not long ago the year of the Bach in 1988 when Major League Baseball tried to codify to a more specific uh, detail uh, how long a pitcher needed to stop in his pitching motion in order for it to not be a balk. And And you can understand the impulse because, as you've pointed out, no one actually agrees or understands on what a balk is. Right. (laughs) Balks are are one of the worst—I mean, uh, yeah, balks are one of the weirdest— places uh in the baseball rule book i uh i thank you for reminding me i wrote a piece about the balk yes uh about two summers ago in which i looked at every what every balk called that year didn't i yeah i think something a a lot of them (laughs) yeah and i categorized them by type and then uh tried to figure out what the uh what the unifying philosophy was behind the balk and the balk is a mess it is it is a building that was constructed and renovated by like 15 different owners over the course of 100 years with no, co- you know, never once going to City Hall uh, and getting your permit for it. And so it's like this weird thing with like doors that lead nowhere and you don't stand there or it'll collapse. But also like, eh, you know, not, not, it's not it's not horrible. Uh, it could probably be a lot better. I wish it were a lot better. But when they tried to make it a lot better, it was a disaster. And you had this entire year where there were like nine times as many box called as ever again. And they immediately went, well, that didn't work and stopped and went back to the uh, to the vague. Um, and the strike zone itself has been a constant uh, attempt at respecifying. And yet it has had almost no effect on the consistency of that strike zone or the adherence of umpires to that rule. Now, the implementation of uh, PitchFX uh, has of uh, you know a method of assessing umpires to see who is kind of most outside the mainstream on their calls has, but the definition itself doesn't seem to ever uh, dramatically. Uh, I mean, it changes the strike zone, but it doesn't ever seem to actually. Um, make the strike zone any more uniform and to see that all you have to do is look at the fact that the clearest possible definition for a strike is is it over the plate left right and even that umpires don't seem to care about that even with something so specific and 
uh, and irrefutable as the actual existence of an actual plate that it has to cross over doesn't stop them from moving the strike zone all over the place, left, right, depending on the situation and who's batting. Or they just can't tell. They can't comply with the rule because it's too difficult. Yeah, although the 3002 thing would, at least that, it shows some agency on their part. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, you have the uh, neighborhood play, which I think I sort of like that they didn't go specific on that. They basically said... Uh, we are going to leave that um, kind of weirdly undefined and just say, eh, it's it, it's good baseball, mm-hmm. and uh, so that would be the exception to this. So I don't I don't really know. I do think that uh, there is kind of a way in which well, okay, so like robots, right? Robots are pretty good. Like robots can do things. Like like robots can make a car. Uh, much cheaper than we can make a car, right? Uh-huh. They're they're really good at a lot of things, and they I can, can't make a car at all. No, you're horrible at it. Yeah. One of the worst. <laughs> and robots will soon be driving for us, and they will be much safer, and they'll be awesome, and we'll love them for it. Uh, and yet, there are certain things that um, that seem so so simple that a robot can't do, like. It's like no matter how good robots get, they seem to be unable to catch a ball or, you know, it's like really hard to have them pick things up. There are certain things where it doesn't require, it doesn't seem like it requires a lot of great brain space. And yet there is something about the human capacity to, um, to, uh, I don't know, use judgment, I guess. That's what Mm -hmm. it comes down to, to use judgment that is irreplaceable. And it does sort of seem like, like an umpire is should be more capable of you. Like you don't want this to be a zone thing. You want to be able to just say, well, what did it look like? And was it clean or not? Because we all know, like we all see it and we all know whether it was clean or not most of the time. And uh, you can kind of make the case that there is never going to be a map of where you can slide that will adequately capture all of the different variables coming at you but the human brain is very capable of it. Like it's very simple. It's very easy to look at and, you know, pretty much decide like clean or not clean. And so I can see Craig's point that this doesn't actually seem that hard. Catching a ball is not hard. Designing a robot that can catch a ball is insanely hard. Uh, So why are we, you know, why put so much effort uh, into creating a poor ball catching robot? Well, umpires aren't, Doing a great job of no, that, well, that's the thing. This. Right, that's the thing. They, it's the umpires don't call this, and so I, I don't know. Maybe you can't simply say, "Hey, you guys, we're sending out a memo that says we want you to call this," because it does seem like where umpires uh, don't like to step in, they generally don't step in. Like, for instance, uh, pace of game type stuff for a really long time. Uh, even though there were all these pace of game rules written into the rulebook, umpires didn't enforce them in any meaningful way and showed no interest whatsoever in enforcing them. And I don't know if a memo would have helped. And so the league essentially did have to codify it and specify it and say, it's this many seconds. And if this many seconds pass, or if you put your foot right here, then it's this fine. And that's what made the umpires kind of, and the players kind of actually change their behavior and the sport changed. So that was a case where it actually worked. And I don't know that I would have been pro. I, I mean, it, I, it seemed like uh, 
it seemed almost impossible that 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 umpires would ever enforce pace of game things the way that they were so disinterested in it for my entire life. And yet here we are. So yeah. Um, and when I spoke to a former umpire about the pace of game stuff before they added those new rules, he said that umpires just didn't like to enforce it because the league wouldn't back them up on it, that if they did enforce it, it was rare enough that someone would inevitably complain and they'd complain to the league and the league wouldn't really support the umpires and they were just kind of hung out to dry or at least they felt like they were. So if the league did send out a memo and said, really enforce this rule, we mean it this time and we will support you and you won't get in trouble or you won't have to feel like you're on your own, then maybe that would work. Maybe it would work with the existing rule. I don't know, but if you do figure out a way to classify slides so that it's inarguable, it would be easier to enforce, but you're right and Craig's right, it might be difficult or it might be that just by trying to classify it or define it or break it down into these component parts, it makes it harder to actually make a call that you could just kind of look at and make a common sense call about if you didn't feel self-conscious about doing it. Yeah, it basically comes down to whether you think that it's better to have a very imperfect rule enforced consistently, you know, or which would be the the the, you know, geographic zones idea. Like I would imagine that in most cases those geographic zones or whatever they do will be worse than the umpire's judgment. However, you get to choose whether you want to have an okay rule enforced all the time or a great rule enforced never, which is what we have now. And whether, you, like, it's a sliding scale, whether you can get it enforced more without having to resort to that, and maybe you can't. Yeah. All right. Next thing, Ben. Yeah. Jose Fernandez. Uh, this is from some wire service. Jose Fernandez says, any conversations regarding his 2016 workload will include agent Scott Boris. Contrary to what the team has said, Marlins president David Sampson last week pledged to exclude Boris after the agent complained about the Marlins handling of another Boris client, outfielder Marcelo Zuna, who is believed to be on the trading block. Fernandez innings will be closely watched in 2016 as they were this year after he returned from Tommy John surgery. Now, I uh, guess there are a couple of things here. One, do you think it is within the team's rights to exclude a player's agent from this conversation? Two, do you think that the player is, uh, do, I don't know, do you, do you think the player is right to bring his agent into it? And three, as partly an answer to both of those, or as a, um, as a complicating factor in both of those, it does sort of feel like weird that your agent's behavior or what your agent can do or will do or is allowed to do on your behalf would in any way be affected by his other clients. And yet, that seems like probably a thing that happens, right? Yeah. Okay, that's my three. So, (laughs) you answered the third one. Good work. There are teams that don't like Boris because of previous negotiations, and they have some sort of loose or strict policy about not negotiating with him, which obviously influences negotiations or non-negotiations with other Boris clients. So... And we've talked before about how when you have so many free agents in one offseason, it seems like you almost have a conflict of interest in certain cases. But uh, 
So as for whether an agent should be involved, I think the player has a right to involve his agent. I mean, that seems legitimate. I guess the degree of involvement is up for debate. I mean, Fernandez says, I get to decide who's going to be on my phone calls, on my conference. It's that simple. Scott Boris will be there because he's my agent. I mean, that, what, that seems... Is it, um, it, Right. Legally, sure. Yeah. Is it, are you surprised? I guess what I'm saying is, are, is it, is it the sort of thing that you would think there'd be an unwritten rule about that this would not be seen as a, that like your team, do you think that your, his teammates, for instance, will react differently to uh, him bringing in his agent as opposed to him simply advocating for himself? Like that makes it look a little bit more, you know, it's, explicitly, it's more big league, explicitly but, commercial, but these are big league players. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I think there's so much at stake. I think the players would probably all understand that. Just, uh-huh. I mean, Jose Fernandez has an enormous contract coming, so you can see why he would want his agent involved, and I would think players would understand that. They all have a lot of money at stake, and maybe they don't totally trust the Marlins to handle them differently. Like, maybe it would vary depending on if you're with, you know, the Cardinals or some organization that's perceived to be really great at every aspect of baseball and the Marlins who are perceived to be kind of a clown show. So I would think that might affect things. I, I, maybe the question though is like how much it helps to have your agent there. I mean, the presumption is that the agent is going to have your back and has your interests in mind because your interests are his interests because he's working on commission but that sort of implies that maybe the team won't totally have your interests in mind. You know, maybe the Marlins are going to trade Jose Fernandez anyway, and they don't really care if they work him hard right now because it'll be some other team's problem in the long run. I guess that's, I mean, that's possible. It's something you might want to have in mind as a player. I don't know what medical expertise Scott Boris or any other agent brings to the discussion. I, I mean, there could be some if you're, agent is paying for a second opinion or a third opinion or whatever it is, then maybe, yeah, maybe Boris's organization is big enough that his company has done studies and actually has a something to add to this because it's not settled science. It's not like some other thing that teams know for sure. It's like everyone's kind of feeling it out and everyone has an opinion and we're not sure who has the best opinion yet. And so Maybe Boris has actually something to contribute to this discussion. I don't know. I mean, if if you were surgeons and team physicians that are involved in this, maybe you would think it's just meddling and this agent has nothing to add, doesn't know anything that you don't know. So I don't know. I mean, if he's just on the call, just sort of blindly saying, we don't want this guy to pitch a lot of innings because that feels like it would be bad, then that would be you know, a problem for the team. Like if the team has actual studies and doctors and knows things and the agent default position is just, we want him to pitch less because if he pitches less, there's less of a chance he'll get hurt. Then that just kind of derails things a little bit, but I, I don't think, blame Fernandez for wanting to have him involved. Yeah. I, I, first of all, I think that we can rule out probably that Boris is 
whatever information Boris brings to the table in terms of research, like we've seen Boris's research, you know? Yeah. Like we we well, know what he presents to teams. That's the clearly skewed. I mean, that's when he's trying to talk a team into doing something silly, you know, if he's just making a binder that goes to the owner and tries to pull the wool over the owner's eyes, that's, yeah. you know, it's possible that he's like actually doing some useful research, but I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. It, whether he is or not, it's it's sort of hard to imagine that clubs are going to be reading it with yeah. great care. Like, I, I think you're right that they would see it like coming from Boris, coming from a obviously um, interested party. Well, I guess his interest isn't a disqualifier, but all the same, uh, I don't know that they would take it seriously. But maybe, anyway, I mean, the, but that's not why. Like, the reason that Boris is involved in this, the reason that your agent is always involved in it is because they are uh, better at demanding things than you are, and they are better at issuing threats than many of us are comfortable with. They do your dirty work. They're bad cop, right? Uh-huh. And you get to keep being good cop, and so you bring in your bad cop, and he... He threatens and says no, and this is going to happen, and we refuse, and says all the hard words that we're not really good at saying. And I guess that probably um, the position that I'm sort of half-heartedly introducing, that maybe there's something wrong with this, it probably is what I'm maybe reacting to and what maybe in 20 years I will look back and think how quaint that I even half-heartedly put this position forward. But Basically, this was like 50 years ago. Uh, teams got to tell players what they were going to play for. Like, the, this is how much we're going to pay you. And it, the players didn't really have the pull, and they didn't have the representation to get more. And gradually, based because of their unions, first, uh, and then later because of their agents, like Scott Boris, uh, they were able to bring in these bad cops who were able to demand and threaten and do the things that we're not as good at doing on our own and they got the players uh market value for their services and that was a good and fair thing and we i think that to this point until fairly relatively recently we have seen the role of the advocate as ending there for the most part uh and boris's has always been a little bit of an exception to this, but all the same, you didn't really hear these conversations happening. The role of the advocate stopped with, I'm going to get you as much money as you can, get you in the position you want to play, and uh, then the next time you have a chance to make more money, I'll get you more money again. And it's increasingly being that, no, I'm also going to advocate for your entire career, for everything about your career, including your health and including you being in the right opportunity even once you're under contract, like, for instance... I think it was Boris who said Frankie Rodriguez was not going to go anywhere where he wasn't a closer uh, when he was being traded. Then I think he did go somewhere where he wasn't a closer, but all the same. Uh, and it because this is still sort of a new area of advocacy that isn't the norm, it looks kind of like, at first glance, it sort of looks like overreach. And you have to think well okay is this far enough what what else can he like is this a slippery slope is there any point where the agent can't advocate for the guy or shouldn't advocate for the guy is there any point at which well you signed a contract part of your contract says that we're your boss and we tell you what we need from you we ask you to do tasks and it is your job to do those tasks and you're not going to bring your agent in for every uh thing we ask you to do and fight us over it and i don't know if this is overreach or not 
I don't know how far this would go. Uh, it seems somewhat tacky on first glance, and it's quite possible that after a few years of this, I'll get so used to it that it won't seem tacky at all. And it'll be like, yeah, of course. Can you believe there was an era where guys didn't get to advocate for their own health and career? It's nuts. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not sure, I, you know, emotionally, from an emotional response, I am still a little bit eh about it. That's all. Yeah. I mean, if it were something different, if it were like a guy wanted to hit in a certain lineup slot or something and he didn't but why like not? the lineup like, slot he was in or, or, you know, maybe, I mean, we have seen guys dissatisfied with whether they're starting or relieving or that sort of thing, or maybe what position they're playing. So you could imagine it getting to a point where right. players just, you know, like feel entitled to play exactly how they want to play. And when they don't get their way, they're agent comes in and makes a big stink about it and that would be a problem maybe <laughs> we haven't seen that so much like there's a certain degree to which you know paying for a player seems to entitle the team to use him the way it wants to use him so if if he's starting if they want him to start then he starts or if he's relieving then he has to be in the bullpen and that's just the way it goes because he sort of signed over his usage to the team or his role to the team. And this is maybe a little bit different because it has this health aspect to it, which you couldn't really claim with where the guy hits in the batting order or something. So you could see this being applied to things like starting or relieving if you wanted to claim that there was a health aspect to that. So it could be pushed too far, I suppose. So maybe you're opening the door for other ways that you could exploit having a powerful agent when some other player might not have a powerful agent. Yeah. Or when your agent's decisions are, I don't like, I, I think that most agents would probably shudder at the idea that, that I would even suggest this, but you, if you have 40 agents, I mean, if you have 40 clients, uh, there is some potential that, um, that what you do for one affects what you can or will be able to do for another and creates some incentives that might be a little bit perverse, uh -huh. perhaps. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, the fact that it's a health thing makes it easier to swallow. And it, in a way, if, say, Boris and or other agents are trying to expand their, um, their power in day-to-day -day decisions, uh, it is... Like, as they say, uh, what, what do they say? <laughs> what do they say, man, with the Supreme Court? How, like, if you want to take a case to the Supreme Court, you, you sort of, like, you look for the perfect... The perfect test case? Nah, nah there's, a, there's a phrase for it, though. There's a, like, you... I think shopping might be part of the phrase. Plaintiff shopping. Uh. If Boris and or other agents are trying to expand their day-to-day -day roles into sort of... Uh, create, uh, you know, like sort of gradually broaden how much they're allowed to be part of these dis this uh, these discussions and decisions. Then, in a way, choosing an issue like health, choosing health for young pitchers is a great entry point, right? Because it's sort of it's a very attractive it's a very attractive plaintiff in a way. And uh, so maybe uh, this is the the way that they sneak in through the door, or maybe this is just it. maybe. Maybe they're they're pursuing this because this is an important thing, and that nobody is going to really disagree that a 23 year old player should be represented in important issues that affect his long term health by an adult who is paid to represent him and advocate for him. 
so I don't know. I guess maybe this is one of those things where the specifics are good and obvious, and maybe it's where we are in ten minutes. Uh, ten minutes, ten years will help me decide how I feel about it. Time will tell. Time will tell. Usually does. Okie doke. Last thing, Robinson Cano uh, is, according to New York Daily News, unhappy in Seattle. Uh, the New York Daily News is um, John Harper writes about uh, what Seattle thinks of him and quotes a friend of oh, – oh, come on. Capital P in DePoto? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, forget this topic. <laughs> yeah. we'll, uh, we'll stick to this topic. Talks to a friend who says that uh, he wants to go back to New York any way he can. Uh, and I uh, just wanted to know on a uh, blunder scale, how blunderous was this signing uh, two years in, would you say? How bad is this for the Mariners? Is it bad? Is this a completely sunk ship in your mind? And and uh, is it now like one of the worst contracts in the game? And Or is it not? And then I have a follow-up. I wouldn't have said that it was a week ago before we knew that that Andy Vance like thought Robinson Cano was the worst player ever, and uh, and now there are reports saying that Cano feels the same about the Mariners. So I guess if they if they both think the other is terrible, then that makes it more of a blunder. Just but based purely on stats and dollars, it's still not unsalvageable. I don't think. I mean, Cano in the second half was still. Robinson Cano still the player that they paid for, and the Mariners are still trying to compete. It's not like they totally missed a Cano window or something. So I wouldn't say it's it's unsalvageable, other than the fact that they might hate each other, in which case that's always a bad thing. Better or worse than uh, where the Albert Pujols was deal at the same time? I think better, because yeah. Pujols was diminished immediately. Like significantly, I mean, Cano, his first year with Seattle was a Robinson Cano year. It didn't yeah. didn't really MVP look quality. the same. He didn't hit for as much power, but overall production, he was Dynamite. as good as they paid him to be. Whereas Pujols really never was with the Angels. And like you say, he was he had a very good second half last year. He was physically compromised, which isn't always good. Sometimes that can be even worse. But uh, there at least is a reason why he was bad in the first half, and then he had a very good second half. Probably the most the most worrisome thing might be that he's gone in the last four years. His defensive, according to DRS, his defense has gone from plus 15 to plus 6 to 0 to minus 9. It's, by the end of this contract, that's like minus 40, 50, <laughs> if I do the math correctly, 60. Uh, okay, so not a blunder, so maybe this isn't the greatest time to ask this, but it always feels to me like we talk about how horrible these deals work out. For the team, uh, and that these, you know, like, oh, geez, why do they keep giving 10-year deals to guys? We know that it's never going it's, to, it's going to be ugly by some point, and often it's ugly almost immediately. But I always am struck by how these deals seem to so often work badly for the players. And in one sense, they turn out great for the players. All the money. Yeah. Good. But they just seem like these guys, like, the, like, if you could somehow quantify it, it feels to me like... There is a very high correlation between length of deal and how sad the dude looks. 
<laughs> there's like there's a, there's a, there's this extra pressure on them. They get I mean guys with these deals sometimes they get booed by like the third week if they're not playing well. Uh, there it's just such a different uh, thing playing for a team that gave you two hundred million dollars than it was when you were playing for the team that drafted you or that. Uh, traded for you as a young player or that signed you for, you know, even a two-year deal or whatever. And I, like, I know that, I know that the money is like how we judge whether people are successful in life. So I would never, ever go against such an obvious thing as that. But like, these guys have all the money. Why? Like, I feel like that everybody would benefit. Everybody would benefit by some negotiated rule change that says, Four-year deals, max. You just cannot, even three. I'd go three. You cannot have longer than three-year deal. You can renegotiate every year and extend that deal. But three-year deals, you guys cannot be trusted with the power we've given you. You're continually making decisions that make you sad and unhappy and miserable. And just don't do that. Like, like we're, we're going to make it so that you cannot do that. And I am coming off as a somewhat paternalistic uh, uh, government here. And yet, I just don't like seeing all these players that were happy sad. Uh-huh. Well, there is definitely more of a chance that you'll be unhappy because, as you mentioned, there's the pressure and there's the fact that you make yourself a target by being paid like a franchise player. If you have a bad year, everyone gets mad at you to a greater degree than they might if you were only signed for a few years. And no one can predict what a, the state of a franchise is going to be in seven years or eight years. So you lock yourself in when things are good and when this seems like a team that you'd want to play for. And then for all you know, by the end, it's a new owner or it's a new management or it's a new manager and the team is terrible now and you're stuck with a dead-end team and you couldn't have seen that coming. So you definitely make yourself more susceptible to a bad situation because you just can't be as responsive you can't get out so i don't know if you looked at the the dollars per war or whatever of long-term deals i wonder if you'd find that they favored players more than a three or four year deal maybe you would find that seems like you would find that but i'm not sure i haven't looked so if you took away that option then you'd be taking away money from the players and Players have a smaller share of revenue than they used to, so they don't need any more money taken away from them. But you're probably you're probably right. Maybe if I mean it depends though. If you're someone who becomes really bad at baseball all of a sudden, if you're Vernon Wells or something, then you're probably happier. Are you happier because you're making twenty million dollars when you're terrible, no, or are you I, miserable I mean, because everyone uses you as a punchline? I think you're miserable. And I like, look, I mean, Vernon Wells signed a seven year deal for 126 million or whatever. Right. And probably if it had been a three year deal, he's still he probably gets 90. Uh And so I think that, uh, you know, I don't know that there's that much value in life to the uh, the 36 million dollars at the back end of 126 million. Like, I think the first million is pretty cool. And the 90th, then it's just going into a bank account. Like you don't even, you, you never see it, you never touch it, you never spend it, you never hold it. It doesn't exist in any particular way. It's a symbol in your life and nothing more. So I think, and he, he like it did suck to be Vernon. Like it was 
it was it was hard to watch Vernon Wells. Like Vernon Wells had to be the guy that everybody kind of averted their eyes around for a long time, and he was a really good dude who would have been a great veteran, I think, if he had been paid a reasonable amount. And I mean, he did. He seemed like he was happier when he was in. New York, because New York wasn't really hardly paying for him. I don't think I've ever shared on this podcast my philosophy for tipping, Ben? Nope. Okay, so, uh, you know, I think that you should tip generously, right? And as, a, as a good person, I believe that. And I struggle with what to do when you get really bad service, because uh, I don't want to give them a big tip, but I also don't want it to be sort of, like, self-serving. Like, I don't want to have the incentive to not give a big tip because it profits me. Like, if mm-hmm. I get bad service, it's not an opportunity for me to get richer. Yeah. Uh, and so my philosophy is feel free to tip less to horrible service, but whatever you would have normally tipped, the difference, you got to make sure you give that to somebody else down the line. Like, you got to make sure that you're, you're tipping the same amount in aggregate. And if you're distributing the money more efficiently to the good servers than to the bad ones, that seems good. That's a good market incentive for them, uh, just as long as you're not doing it to keep the money yourself, to be selfish. Uh-huh. And anytime we talk about any changes to contracts or to collective bargaining agreement or anything like that, you don't, you like, we, we want to avoid anything that just makes owners richer. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the nice things, I, I think, if I understand it, about like NBA contracts and having the salary cap and all that is that the amount of money that owners spend on players is basically fixed. The amount of the percentage of revenue that players get is essentially fixed. And so then it just becomes about trying to figure out how best to distribute the money. Uh, not doesn't seem like they do it in a great way in the NBA because uh, horrible guys all get $4 million and LeBron gets like 4.5, <laughs> as I understand it. But uh, at least the incentive is not quite so obviously there for billionaires to hoard the money. Uh, when they're deciding how to distribute it. And so baseball doesn't have that. Baseball doesn't have a, you know, 47% of revenue has to go to players floor or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be good if they did. I don't know. Maybe then it just becomes too complicated and opens up all sorts of unintended consequences. But my three-year max contract idea, I do not want to do it if it is just a way for Jeffrey Loria to get richer. Uh, I do, though, feel like it is a pro-player uh, suggestion in my heart. The spirit of it is for the players. Uh-huh. That's, that's really what I'm bringing to this, is that I'm making the case that the short-term contract is ultimately more humane. Yeah, I guess the problem is that now when we say that someone should sign a shorter-term deal for more money, there's the option of the longer-term deal, whereas if there's no longer-term option then the team wouldn't necessarily have to pay a premium for the short term because there's no alternative. So you'd need to figure that out. Yeah. A player could say, like, I'm, I'm doing this for three years, so I need to get, you know, $40 million or something per year because you're not taking on as much risk. Whereas, you know, in this situation, in this scenario, the team doesn't have the option of taking on more risk. So they don't have to pay a premium for less risk. There's a lot to figure out, and we have a lot of time to do it. Right after the Chase Utley rule, we'll figure this out. Yeah. All right. So. All right. So send us emails, podcast at baseballperspectives.com. Join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. 
rate, review, subscribe to the show on iTunes, and support our sponsor, The Play Index, baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 on one of your subscription. Talk to you soon.